At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross, sneaking in on the last day of the month. I'm terribly sorry about that, but that's what happens when we have busy months, and November certainly has been an extremely busy month. Joined, as usual, by Canon Christopher Thomas, uh, General Secretary of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales, the Secretariat. Canon Chris, how are you today? Uh, fine, thank you, James. Interesting what you said about November. I was—I have a calendar on my desk, and uh, yesterday was the only day that had nothing marked in it Good for the whole of the month. So it's, it has been a very, very busy month. So yes, I apologise that uh, that we're so late in getting here, as it were. But there's there's good things to talk about. There certainly are, and it, it was a plenary month as well, of course. Yes, and, we um, we always have the bishops' of November plenary in the uh, in the week that begins in double figures. Uh, yeah. the, the the two rules, as you know, uh, <laughs> the. Uh, the, the November plenary always begins on the first Monday in double figures, so that's between the 10th and the 16th, and then the spring plenary always begins on the Monday of the third liturgical week of Easter. Yeah, absolutely. No longer low week. It's the, it's the lower than low week. <laughs> low, low, low week. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. And um, for those uh, that haven't heard the nice rap that you did with Father Jan Novotnik, our Director of Mission, who obviously played that part at Synod, um, you can listen to that. We will add this to the, the end of this podcast when you and I have finished with, with our, our portion of it. But there are a few things to talk about. I mean, obviously, uh, we've had the Feast of Christ the King and we move into the wonderful season of Advent ahead of Christmas. We have the start of the year of prayer ahead of the Jubilee year in 2025. So that's going to be taking up some time, of course. And um, thank goodness we have had a, a truce in the Israel-Gaza conflict, which you know, at the time of recording appears to be uh, holding. Thank, thank the Lord. And, and continuing, thank God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when we look to Bethlehem, mm. we look to Christ and the birth of Christ, the Prince of Peace. It's rather appropriate that when, when we gaze in that direction, that's what we pray for, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, uh, last weekend I was at St George's Cathedral for the investiture of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, and as a Knight of the Holy Sepulchre, you have to have a care for the people of the Holy Land. And uh, mm. Archbishop John Wilson, who's the Grand Prior, gave a fantastic homily, which Wasn't is that a, good. It, yeah. It's available, I think, on on the Southwark website. It's on ours as and well, and it's on ours. Great, yeah. because it it was a fantastic homily. Uh, you know, calling us to prayer uh, mm. for peace in the Holy Land, so that uh, the Christ, the Prince of Peace, can actually uh, enter the hearts of all and, and bring about a lasting change. Yeah, I was very moved by that, hence why we we carried it. And it's, you know, after all the sort of... It's very difficult to speak about it. It's very painful. It's a a very difficult subject. But we are on the side of the human, the side of the human being. And um, obviously we pray for peace. And it was, I thought, a very well-judged thing to say ahead of Advent. You know, when we look to the Holy Land, let's pray for peace and let's look at the human being and the human suffering and and do our bit to bring that to an end. What what I find very moving though is is when when you go to the holy land and I, i've been six times to the holy land the gospels become alive mm. um in in a in a very very um incredible way that's very difficult to describe you know when True. you when you stand at the church of the primacy of peter and you see the rock which they say jesus cooked breakfast on for the fishermen in john 21 
And I can remember celebrating Mass there and the people were in tears when I was reading the Gospel. I thought, what have I done? And, and behind me, the fishermen were going out. Oh, you know, and and that sort of thing becomes very, very much part of, of, of your life. And so, you know, in the great sort of tranquil waters of the Sea of Galilee and then to look at Gaza and what's happening there, you know, we have got to transfer the peace and the joy of the gospel that we have on the Mount of the Beatitudes into the heart of Gaza and into the heart of those who um, must negotiate. They must negotiate about the the lives of the people that are are, are in peril. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. You know, it's very easy to be simplistic about this situation, mm. uh, but the one simple thing we can do is pray. And that's, yep. that, has, that clarion call to prayer that John Wilson made at the weekend is really, really important. Yeah, I totally agree. And and I've only been a couple of times to the Holy Land, but it, it is it is that place where the scriptures literally come alive, where yes. Christ comes alive. It feels like, and I think that's through the people as well as the buildings. Yes. Most definitely. Yeah. Visiting the parishes there. And mm. remember the Christians are a big minority in yeah. in uh, in the Holy Land. But visiting the parish of St Joseph in Nazareth, I mean it's a beautiful beautiful parish. Uh, uh, and and so much going on and a wonderful spirit of community with the people and the schools that the Latin Patriarchate runs in the area you know they are, they are faith filled and are. Uh, and you know it's the people that are the living stones of the church there no you're you're absolutely right or going to some of the very small towns almost villages in the west bank where there are churches of the Latin Patriarchate yeah. and you always get a wonderful reception Yes. And some of the people don't have very much, but they, they want to share. No. They want they want you to be a part of their world, actually, and see what's happening in, in their lives. It's, it's always very humbling because when you live as, as, as a minority, you know, they, but, but they're creative minorities. And they, mm. they create a sense of love in their communities, they, their worship of the Lord and their support of each other and the support of the wider community as well You know, is very, very important. And uh, uh, I'm always touched when I go there, especially to the parishes and, and, and to uh, the works that the Latin Patriarchate does. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I know it's more of a theme for, for Lent and Easter, but when you look at the suffering of Christ, even when you look at the awful suffering in the Holy Land and, and in that conflict, Christ has borne the ultimate suffering in many ways. So we can always relate to him, you know, when it comes to bearing our suffering, can't we? And as St. Paul tells us, you know, we, we make up for, for, for the sufferings of Christ, you know, in, mm. in our own suffering that, that leads us into a deeper relationship with him. Uh, and if that is a deeper relationship, it's a, it's a relationship of discipleship and following him and taking the mission of the church out into the world. And so... Um, you know, that, that's so important. And we unite ourselves with those who suffer through our prayer and through the practical ways that we can support them as well. Absolutely. And um, we also need our saints, don't we? And one that springs to mind is the last English saint to be canonised, St John Henry Newman. And we'd rather like him to be a doctor of the church, wouldn't we? Yes, the uh, the bishops resolved in the spring plenary to petition the Holy Father formally that he consider creating St. John Henry Newman as a doctor of the church. And part of the process that that, uh, that, that requires is that we petition other bishops' conferences and other uh, Catholic institutions around the world to ask for them to consider and lend their support to it. And at this point, uh, we've got over 22 bishops' conferences who we have asked if they would consider it actively supporting our petition that St. John Henry Newman be made a doctor of the church. 
Which is amazing, isn't it? Because obviously Newman, what we can take from that is that Newman moves people, whether it's through his great theology, his educationist. Um, he, he is a, a very inspiring saint, not just in England and Wales, isn't he? Yes. And the thing is, when you look at his writings, you can see that, that he was writing for his time. But in fact, there's a sort of translation of that across time. And so uh, um, one of the things that, particularly because of my, my, my past work, you know, his, his understanding of, of a university, uh, I actually thought was fantastic when I was a university chaplain. And, and uh, universities, of course, have Newman centres. Yeah. Simply for the reason that he understood the role of faith and reason within the context of higher learning. So uh, um, once we've we've done the work on 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 uh, the bishops' conferences, we're going to look then at, at spreading the the word more broadly, particularly through the network of Newman centres and chaplaincies to universities, because Newman is such a a, a character and a teacher for for those institutions. And I remember when I was ahead of the. Um canonization i was making podcasts about newman all manner of people contributing on, on all those different facets of, of newman's teaching and it was amazing how many americans no not, not to just talk about the american bishops conference as one of those bishops conferences but but americans greatly revere newman don't they yes and the newman network is vast all of Newman's writings are actually digitised in America and we're drawing very closely with them looking at how we can bring together the corpus of Newman's teaching. And here's one of those sort of, I wouldn't say dumb questions, but a, a 101 question. So what is a Doctor of the Church? So a Doctor of the Church is a title given to somebody uh, who is a saint, recognised as having made a significant contribution to theology or doctrine through their spiritual lives, through their writing, through their teaching and through um, the way in which they transmitted the faith. The most sort of famous doctors, I would say, is if basically because people are often on pilgrimage in Rome, if they go to the altar of the chair, which is right at the back below the, the window of the Holy Spirit in St. Peter's Basilica, there's a, the bronze statues of the two Western doctors and the two Eastern doctors. So there's St. Ambrose and St. Augustine, who are the, uh, the Western doctors. And then the Eastern doctors are St. John Chrysostom and St. Athanasius. And uh, they're holding up the relic of the chair of St. Peter, which sits within it. So a doctor is somebody with great eloquence, great teaching, great exposition of the truths of faith. And what we are asking is that St. John Henry Newman is actually placed amongst those doctors of the church. Well, I mean, he sounds very suitable for the role. So, um, you know, let's hope that's a rubber stamping down the line, of course. And, you know, I'm not going to let you go without a little bit of scripture. And I sort of have challenged you as we're right at the end of November. So it's looking ahead to Advent and it's also looking at Christ the King, which we celebrated. So, yes, we're in that sort of bridging period where we're completing one liturgical year and beginning a second, uh, a new liturgical year. So we're going to move from liturgical year where we read St. Matthew's Gospel into the liturgical year where we read St. Mark's Gospel. And the Feast of Christ the King is a, is a good thing to end the church's year with as it segues into um, the expectation of the coming of Christ in his glory. So we think about the kingship of Christ and then we look at the coming of the kingdom and its fullness in Advent, in the first bit of Advent, before we then turn to the proximate coming of Christ at Christmas. So last Sunday we celebrated the feast of our Lord Jesus Christ, Universal King, and um, the preface for Feast of Christ the King tells us what the kingdom is like. So it tells us that it's a kingdom of truth and life, holiness and grace, justice, love and peace. 
So that's what the kingdom is like. Now, if we, through our baptism, are ambassadors for that kingdom, then we too have to demonstrate in our lives the way in which that comes about. So we have to imitate Christ the King. So how do we do that? Well, the three readings that we had last Sunday give us three clues uh, into the, into this. So when you look at the first reading in the psalm, it's all about the shepherding king. So um, Christ is, is a caring shepherding king who seeks out the lost, who bandages the wounded, who leads us into peace, but also has the ability to admonish us when we go the wrong way and bring us back. Um, so the care is the care of our souls. And so we have to have the same care for others. And I challenge people in the church I was in on Sunday to think about those people now who they know do not practice their faith anymore. Because if we are to imitate Christ the shepherding king, we have to shepherd them back into the fold. Mm. And of course, one of the great things that we always say is come back for Christmas. So use the season of Advent to bring those who, who have lost the practice of their faith back into the church. Because a lot of the people who I've talked to who have come back to the practice of the faith said that the, the most fearful thing was stepping across the threshold of the church door on their own. But if we walk with them, Accompaniment, one of Pope Francis's great things. Good buzzword. If we if we walk with them and bring them across the threshold of, of the of the church, um, then um, we are bringing them back. We are shepherding. Now the second reading was the earliest piece of scripture that we have in the New Testament for the resurrection of Jesus, which is from one Corinthians fifteen, and so here we see Christ as the conquering King. So yes, he has conquered all things, and as the reading says, the last thing to be put under his feet will be death. Uh, because we are a people of hope and uh, people who will have life everlasting. But unlike conquering kings that we have in this world, and we've been reading about this in the in the readings at the last liturgical week of the year, uh, so we had the, we've had the story of the Maccabees and we're reading the book of Daniel at the moment, conquering kings tend to subdue their people and make them subject. Now, we're subjects, but we have a deep freedom. And Christ is calling us to exercise that freedom through his conquering of all things so that we too can be people of the resurrection. So our job as conquerors, as it were, or conquering king, is to proclaim the gospel of Christ so that others may have that life and have it in its fullness. Now, the gospel last week, which I know a lot of people find very difficult, is the last judgment. But here I, I see Christ as a paradoxical king. And it's the paradox of love because what we see here is something really, really quite beautiful. If we are baptised into Christ, then, as St Paul says, that the love of God impels us, drives us to actually live out our Christian life. And what I always find fascinating about those who are judged righteous is that they didn't recognise that they were doing it because they turned to Christ and they said, well, when were you hungry? When were you a prisoner? When were you sick? And I didn't, When? Come on, tell us. And he said... He has a, a mystical union with those who are suffering and need help. When we act with those corporate works of mercy, we are actually acting for Christ and in Christ. And that's why we are judged righteous. Now, those who are judged unrighteous probably would have said, if I'd seen you there, then, then I would have done it. But I didn't see you. And that's because they're not allowing the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit to give us divine spectacles, as it were, to look with the eyes of Christ onto situations and then to do what we can. So those three, three images of Christ help us in our being ambassadors for Christ in the world, bringing forth that kingdom of truth and life, of holiness, of grace and of justice, love and peace.
So that's Christ the King. But then that segues into the Advent period where we are thinking about our preparedness for that. So knowing what we must do, knowing what we must bring forth and how to do it in imitating Christ, we then think about how prepared am I for when the Lord comes so that I can be ready, stay awake, hold your heads high and await the coming of the Lord. Because the Lord will come and he will come in a moment and we won't know when. Nobody knows the hour or the day. If we did, we probably wouldn't get out of bed. But we don't know and therefore we have to be in a state of constant preparedness to meet the Lord. And what he wants to see is faith. Faith that is driven by hope, which is our desire to be with him and exercised in love to our brothers and sisters in the world. Which is a nice link to that previous gospel for the Feast of Christ the King, isn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, it is stark in a way because it's a, a case of, or certainly this is how I heard it, you know, be on your guard. You have to be aware of the opportunities to help people. Don't look the other way. Don't think that, oh, well, there'll be other opportunities. It's a challenge, isn't it? Yes. And one of the great reminders of that is uh, the, the, the sort of apocryphal story of the man who's drowning at sea. And uh, he puts his trust in God. And so uh, while he's there, the lifeboat comes and picks him up. He says, no, no, I'm waiting for God to, to save me. And then, uh, and then the helicopter comes and he says, no, no, God will save me. And then the, the steamer goes past and throws a rope over. He says, no, no, God will save me. And he drowns. And he says to God, well, why didn't you save me? He said, well, I sent you a, a lifeboat. I sent you a helicopter and I sent you a steamer. You know, so, so we've got to look for those opportunities. <laughs> How clearer could I be? <laughs> No, absolutely. No, thanks for that. That's wonderful. Um, I actually, I was the reader in, in my parish for Christ the King. And so it's really interesting to hear your reflections on those. Because sometimes when you're reading, obviously, you want to get it right and you want to do it well. Um, but you don't think as deeply as you should about the words you're reading sometimes. It needs to sort of, it's a process, isn't it, actually? Yeah, and I, I always say to people if they're reading in church, because we have a lectionary and not a Bible, as it were, mm. in doing the liturgical uh, uh, cycles, have a look at the passage that you're reading in the Bible and read the bits above and below and try and get a bit of context yeah, that's a good uh, point. about it. Because uh, otherwise, when, when you read it, it, it can come out a bit stale. But if you read it with knowing what you're talking about. So that gobbit from uh, um, St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you know, begins with the, what, what, what I call the great tradition. Because Paul begins that section in 1 Corinthians 15, that which I receive myself, I hand on to you. So he's being faithful to what has been handed on. So as you proclaim the word in the, in the assembly, you are being faithful to that tradition in handing yeah. it on to others. Spot on. Well, look, thanks very much. We'll probably have to bring our December at the foot of the cross towards the middle of the month, I think. I would think, think so, yeah. Maybe, maybe ahead of the O Antiphons. Yes, but well, the O Antiphons this year, of course, we have the shortest Advent this year. Yeah. Uh, because the, uh, uh, the fourth Sunday of Advent is Christmas Eve. So we have a very short Advent. And, of course, the, the O Antiphons begin on the third Sunday. So... Um, We'll re recapitulate what we did some years ago on the O Antiphons because they're always wonderful meditations. Yeah. But we'll certainly make sure that the foot of the cross is done before our Christmas party, maybe, James. Why not? What a way <laughs> to focus on our Christmas party Indeed. in the right way. <laughs> Canon Chris Thomas, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And, of course, our listeners will be hearing a little bit more from you later in this podcast. Um, that wrap on plenary so yeah. they, can, they can understand what the bishops were saying and why they were saying it. But for now, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, James. At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. 
Right, well, the bishops plenary meeting up in Hinsley Hall, Leeds, has just concluded the November plenary, and I'm with uh, General Secretary Canon Chris Thomas. Um, give us a wrap as to what the bishops have, have resolved. Well, the first thing, um, the, or the most important thing about the plenary meeting is it's time for the bishops to actually be together. And in many respects, the work that's done outside of the formal uh, structure of the meeting is, uh, is, is just as important as what's actually discussed. So uh, to actually have time to pray together, to celebrate Mass together, to be with each other uh, is first and foremost the, the most important thing for this plenary. But there's been a lot of work going on as well. So um, we've had two very interesting presentations this week. Uh, one from the Catholic Union about their work as one of the oldest consultative bodies to the Bishops Conference in England and Wales. And one from PACT, uh, the Prisoners Advice Care Trust. Um, their work is quite remarkable, especially in these difficult times with respect to prison uh, occupancy and the way in which people need to be supported, uh, not only within the prison structure, but outside of it. And their advocacy work, as well as their pastoral support work, is really quite important. So uh, um, the bishops were very, very pleased to be able to hear firsthand from uh, the CEO of PACT. Uh, about their ongoing work uh, in this vital area of pastoral support, but work also that the Bishop's Conference, through the work of um, Bishop Richard Moth, who is the lead bishop for prisons, uh, how he is advocating and working with HMPPS and the other departments of the Home Office to ensure uh, good reform for prisons and for prisoners. So uh, what have we been talking about? What have we resolved? Um, well, the, one of the good things that we've agreed is that next year uh, is the year of the International Eucharistic Congress in Quito in Ecuador. Not many people will go from this country, although I know that there are small groups going over to Quito. But we've decided that we will have a smaller Eucharistic Congress here in September uh, at Oscott College. And uh, we're going to be looking for people from all over the country to come together uh, to adore the Lord in the Eucharist, uh, to deepen their Eucharistic theology and to celebrate our Eucharistic faith together. So that's a really positive thing that we'll be looking towards that, which will be then a stepping stone into the Jubilee year, which the bishops have also been looking at, and the way in which my colleague Father Jan Novotnik, uh, the director of mission, is coordinating with the dioceses who all have um, Euchar- or, or, who all have coordinators for the Jubilee year to look at the way in which we can do the years of preparation, of prayer, uh, and of looking at the, uh, the the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, so that we are opening ourselves and our hearts to the person of Christ, who is obviously our Jubilee. He is the centre of our Jubilee life. Now, it's important to say this is not necessarily Adoramus 2, is it? That big gathering that we had in Liverpool in 2018. No, it's not going to be on the scale of Adoramus. But what's important about going to Oscott is that it, um, Oscott was the place where the first Eucharistic procession took place after the uh, re-establishment of the hierarchy. So the first one since the Reformation, in fact. And so uh, our presence there is also a historical link into our Eucharistic history. Um, so this is, is will be a celebration next year in September. Uh, we're looking to gather around about 1,500 people. It'll be a day celebration rather than uh, uh, the weekend that we had for Adoramus. Uh, but that's something that we're going to build on. It's it's a stepping stone. We're still, as it were, uh, you know, in the post-COVID period, we're still looking at how are we going to gather again? How are we going to reinvigorate our faith? Uh, and this is one positive step for that. And in November, Pope Francis met with shrine directors and we have a little bit of 
shrine news, don't we? We do. Um, the um, shrine of St. Winifred at Holywell in North Wales, the bishops have now passed a formal resolution to create that as a national shrine in England and Wales. And I know that Bishop Peter Brignall, the Bishop of, of Wrexham, is delighted by this. And uh, uh, it will be a, a place uh, of enhanced pilgrimage. Uh, and pilgrimage will also form part of that jubilee celebration. We're looking at ecumenical pilgrimages. We have the Pilgrim Ways of Faith that have been developed by Dr. Phil McCarthy, which is already on our website. Uh, and so uh, to create a new uh, national shrine uh, of St. Winifred in Holywell is a really important thing. And I know that Bishop Peter uh, will talk to you about it. Yes, obviously looking forward to that. Now, environmental concerns have been front and centre. And obviously we've had Laudate Deum by the Holy Father. Tell us a bit about that resolution. Well, I always think that that when, when it comes to the environment, we must never think of, of singular documents. So, you know, we've got a, a corpus of magisterial teaching on the environment, which goes all the way back to uh, Pope St. Paul VI. But we've obviously had, within the last month or so, Laudate Deum, which couples with Laudato Si. And we mustn't forget the Fratelli Tutti is in there as well, because the care of the common home is also about the care of humanity. And so we are looking at the holistic approach of care, not only for each other, but for our common home as well. And so with COP28 on the horizon, the bishops have resolved to petition political leaders to take decisive action at COP28 to make sure that our energy transition targets are efficient, obligatory and readily monitored, and that we're going to look at how they can be enforced as well. But the key thing that Bishop John Arnold highlighted as our lead bishop for the environment was that we cannot be complacent about this work. It's very important that we ensure that we continue to make ardent strides to reduce our carbon footprints. Each diocese is looking at their carbon footprint and looking at ways in which it can be reduced. Um, we have the wonderful Guardian of Creation project up in Salford, which John Arnold has been spearheading and creating in his own home at Wardley Hall. Um, but more importantly, it's at the heart of everybody in our Catholic communities to really embrace the principles of living simply, to look at what we can do personally in order to reduce uh, our carbon footprint and to, and to engage in a theological love of, of our world, which is intrinsic to our love of the Lord and of neighbour. And whilst encouraging that action and deepening, there is that acknowledgement that our Catholic schools, parishes, organisations are doing their bit, aren't they? And they are doing it very, very well. I think that one of the most important things that we have to be is vigilant. You know, what can we do? Because even small steps in our personal lives, in the lives of our Catholic communities, in our schools, even small steps can make a big difference. One of the things that uh, that uh, I'm, I'm aware of, uh, and I've, I've spoken about it before, parishes and our presbyteries and our parish halls buy their energy through IFM, the Interdiocesan Fuel Management Company. And uh, all of our gas is, is green and we are certified as a green supplier and we're on the way with elect our electricity as well. So, you know, we are ensuring that what we are doing is sustainable in terms of uh, our energy production on a church basis. But that doesn't mean that, that we can't do more as individuals. I mean, to give you an example, where I live, we've just started doing food recycling. And so I'm very proud to have my food bin on the kitchen uh, shelf ready to take in all of my food scrapings. Westminster Council have only just brought that in. I was very keen to take them up on it. Now, we turn our attention to something, well, obviously tragic and heartbreaking in terms of the, the conflict in Israel and Gaza. 
Yes, the bishops have uh, published a resolution on this, deploring and condemning the barbaric terrorist attacks perpetrated in Israel at the beginning of October. They focus very much on all victims, but particularly on children, because children are traumatised by such action and and it lives deeply in their hearts. And it's only through examples of, of tangible love are they able to overcome these difficulties. And so the bishops have made that expression of solidarity and support with those children, but also a deep call for a cessation of violence. We have to pray ardently for peace. Uh, And as we enter into the season of Advent, the light of Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, will become our focus. And that has to be the underpinning of our prayer for Israel Gaza at this time. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's worth drawing attention to the statement by Bishop Declan Lang as chair of the Department for International Affairs and Bishop Nicholas Hudson as chair of the Holy Land Coordination, obviously focusing on the human and focusing on our prayers on those people suffering. It's a tragedy, an absolute tragedy that should never have happened. And we deplore the fact that that this violence is, is ongoing as um, the statement that the bishops have put out today. A First World War veteran who at the, age of the, uh, at the age of 100 said, in war nobody wins, you might as well talk first, you have to in the end. They're going to have to talk to bring about that peace. But it has to be a genuine um, approach from both sides to make sure that, that there is a lasting peace in the land. Absolutely. And finally, the, the, the final major point in terms of resolutions is a rather lengthy piece on the Synod on Synodality, Steps Towards Renewal. Now, we know this is somewhat of the halfway house with October 2024, another Synod gathering. What are the bishops saying in, in this two-pager? The important thing to remember that um, the Synod is a process. Um, it's not a one-off. It's not three weeks in Rome or four weeks in Rome and then we leave it and we wait for the apostolic exhortation. We're in a process that's been going on for three years and we were well well represented in uh, in the Synod with four representatives, three bishops and my colleague again, Father Jan Novotnik, who represented the church in England and Wales. But more importantly, were, were, were people who engaged deeply in the um, conversations in the spirit, which brought about the um, uh, synodal synthesis, which has been published after that month in Rome. What are they asking for? Two words, to adore and to serve. These come from the Pope's homily at the final mass of this, of this part of the synod. Keeping Christ at the centre of our lives, serving Christ in our brothers and sisters. And these are things that will help us to prepare to embrace what will come out of the synod when it is completed next year. But remember that even when it is completed, and if we have an apostolic exhortation, we don't know, the Pope may not publish one, because this is an embedding of a new way of being. It's not simply about what the Pope's going to say. It's how we are being a missionary church in today's world. And that's why we must always go back, as I've said time and time again to you, James, we go back to the three things, communion, participation, and mission, because it's all about focusing on how can we be more efficient in proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in the world of today. And I think a good time to bring in the Reverend Dr. Jan Novotnik, who was one of those delegates, non-bishop voting member. Now, adoration lies at the heart of, of this statement from the bishops, this resolution. Tell me a little bit more about the centrality and importance of that. Well, I think obviously our adoration of the Lord in the Eucharist comes from the celebration of the Mass. And in the celebration of the Mass, we are there at Calvary, participating in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we receive the fruits of that in the Eucharist. And adoration prolongs that moment of our desire to be with the Lord and love him. 
And I think the bishops are quite right to pick up on those beautiful words of Pope Francis where he said, responding to our baptismal vocation, we want to adore the Lord in our prayer, in our liturgy, particularly in the Eucharist. And that sense of adoration then leads into service. And what I would say, what I felt in the Synod Hall, that you had about 350 people there, bishops, priests, deacons, religious, laywomen and men, who were in love with the Lord. We may not have always agreed on everything in that room, but what we did agree in was that we loved the Lord and we loved his church and we had a deep desire for the mission of the church. But we cannot be missionary unless we know the Lord. And one of the best ways to know the Lord is to spend time with him in prayer. And so what our bishops are inviting all of us to do between this period of time of now until the second part of the, the Synod in 2024 is to reacquaint ourselves with that desire to be with the Lord in Eucharistic communion. And obviously there are those questions with regard to renewal that we're putting before, the bishops are putting before people. Bearing in mind, bearing in mind that, that yes, there's another year to come, tell us a little bit about what they're asking for and how that fits. I think, well, what the, the, the bishops are asking for is, you know, that we deepen and broaden opportunities for people to participate in the prayer of adoration. So I remember when I was a parish priest, I was very keen to provide opportunities for the people to be in church in quiet adoration before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And I'm sure the bishops will be encouraging their parish priests to do the same. And I think, you know, the Adoramus, which Canon Chris has just talked about, in, in September will be a really good moment to remind ourselves of that um, as the as the church in England and Wales. And, and with that, the bishops have said, you know, they've asked the question, how can our experiences of prayer, of thirsting and longing for God, and of gratitude and wonder give a missionary witness? So that communion that we have with the Lord then impels us to do what the Lord asks us to do, go out and teach in my name, to preach in my name, and to baptise all people. And I think this is at the heart of a synodal church. It is about our desire to deepen our relationship with the Lord, and then how we go and proclaim. And the bishops have said one way that we will proclaim, and following the invitation of Pope Francis, is to clearly be the servants of each other. And so our bishops ask the question, how can the person of Christ be clearly at the heart of the service we offer? And how can our service to people in need be framed and shaped to increase the widest possible participation? Realising all the time, you know, that as Catholic Christians, the service we give is always rooted in the service and the example of Christ, whom we will serve in the Eucharist and then serve in each other. I'm going to finish with a difficult question. So you were in the room for the best part of a month. It is a topic, the Synod, because we are, as, as Canon Chris said, talking about communion, participation, mission. Everyone's working out where they stand in this with regard to the church. Why should we still have faith in the process? I think we should still have faith in the process because, as I said at the beginning of what I've just been speaking about, there were people in the room who loved the church. And I think everyone who's been part of the process, and many people who didn't feel that they could answer questions or be part of that process, are people who love Christ and his church. And I think what is at the heart of synodality and why we still need to be engaged is what Pope Francis is asking us to do, is how do we strengthen some of the structures of the church? How do we strengthen our Christian life and witness so that we know the Lord and we serve each other? And that is at the heart of what it means to be a synodal church. Communion 
with the Lord, participation in the life of the church, and then going out in missionary love and service to each other. That's why it's really important. We may get bogged down, forgive me for saying this, in some of the the topics um, that we all know about, sometimes the things that people would like to change in the church. The first thing we need to do, I would suggest, is to configure and change our hearts to be more like Christ. And that is what I think Pope Francis is inviting the church to do. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, allow our hearts to become like those of Jesus Christ, serve each other, and actually we will be living out a synodal experience of the church. Father Jan, thank you very much. And Canon Chris, just a word to finish. We won't be returning in uh, spring 2024 to Hinsley Hall, will we, for the next plenary? No, we are going to go to uh, Buckfast Abbey in the Diocese of Plymouth. Every so often, the bishops gather together for an extended plenary period. And um, this time, we're going to be down in Buckfast, where there will be a shorter as it were, business meeting, but um, an extended period of prayerful retreat. So we're going down to Buckfast in the spring. We're going to be led in retreat by uh, Bishop Eric Varden. Bishop Eric um, is the Bishop of Trondheim um, in Norway. Uh, He was the abbot of Mount St. Bernard's Abbey in um, Leicestershire, which is in my diocese, a place which I know and love very, very much. And um, Eric is going to come and lead the bishops in a retreat. I know that they're looking forward to it because this will be the first time that we've actually been able to do this since uh, 2019. So I think that it's uh, it's a long time that we've not been able to uh, be together in that prayerful environment. So next spring, the spring plenary will be a shortened business meeting, but then a period of, of prayerful retreat with each other. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.